0: Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency, critique, and counter-narrative. Today's discussion is with Dr. Kayama L. Glover. She is an Anne Whitney Allen Professor of French and Africana Studies and Faculty Director of the Digital Humanities Center at Barnard College at Columbia University. She has written extensively about Caribbean literature in works such as Haiti Unbound, A spiralist Challenge to the Postcolonial Canon, and she is the prize winning translator of several works of prose fiction and nonfiction. She has also been awarded grants from the Penn IM Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the Mellon Foundation. She is a regular contributor to the New York Times Book Review and is the co-host of Writing Home American Voices from the Caribbean. In this conversation, we discuss A Regarded Self, Caribbean Womanhood, and the Ethics of Disorderly Being, published by Duke University Press in 2021. Our conversation here focuses on championing unruly female protagonists in selected Caribbean literary works and expanding modes of theorization. So we're here today with Professor Glover. Thank you for joining us. So as a way of getting started, um, so Dr. John Dravinsky, he would always ask, you know, um, people who join us, What were the origins of this project? And he has this spiel that I can never imitate. (laughs) It's definitely wonderful in terms of if you can narrate us into the project, how you came into it. And, of course, when you write a book, it changes your whole life. You know, you're going through the ebbs and the flows. What were some concerns, personal or ethical or philosophical questions um, that drew you to, you know, Regarded self. so why this project and why now
1: thank you for your question I'm, I'm really delighted to be here and um to just talk to you about this this book which you know did have a lot of personal meaning for me i suppose you could say there's like an intellectual way into the project that happened but also i yeah a, a more personal way in. the personal way in is maybe even a little bit banal it was simply um the idea that um, a woman and particularly a woman of color and particularly a black woman's efforts to create boundaries around what she is able or willing to contribute or do, um, that effort to create boundaries or to refuse the incursions or the demands of other people could be perceived as selfishness or narcissism in ways I felt in my own life as a mother, as a friend, as a professor, um, were constraining and at times burdening and painful. And as is my want because I am or an avid reader and uh, a thinker of literature, I did turn to the kind of works that I thought reflected um, that conundrum Facing women, women of color, black women in particular, to see you know how particular char- characters or particular authors crafted characters that worked through those issues, um, and what the consequences were for those characters in particular books. And as I was doing that, as I was thinking about these novels that that spoke to me on those levels in that very personal way, I became interested also in in how theorists and academics, scholars, and critics, how we ourselves tend to imagine uh, Black femininity as something that is always operative from a space of giving um, and maybe disallow or disavow unintentionally and inadvertently, certainly, but nonetheless disallow possibilities for refusal and for boundary setting um, as well, right? So thinking about how these same books that resonated so much for me that told a story, maybe not of who I am, but of what I wish I had more permission to be through their characters, Um, what the consequences were for these characters in the books, but then also what were the consequences for these books in the world? Um, And so that was kind of the, the point of departure. But then alongside that, I saw looking more deeply into these characters, looking into these works and then looking into their academic reception As an opportunity to think through some Caribbean epistemologies that interested me a lot, notably and maybe most importantly, the phenomenon of marronage, which I can talk about it if you're interested. But marronage was one, zombification was another, um, and then arguably community and. And how community gets deployed in the caribbean in a particular kind of ways and in ways that i thought might be at odds with what i was trying to think about in terms of individual women's right to refuse
0: it's um and that definitely came through literally the first page (laughs) i
1: I don't beat around the bush
0: (laughs) no you really didn't it was i the first your very first sentence so i would this is a book about practices of freedom. So it was, and I was like, oh, okay. So I mean, it's clear, you can't question what's happening here. Mm -hmm. But even before then, I think what I really spent some time on was the terms of engagement. And I was like, oh, this is different. I feel like you kind of prepped our minds on how to approach the words that you use in your book. So the first, um, I'm going to read, what you put in the terms of engagement. Sure. So you put the definitions of disorderly, self-defense, self-love, self-possession, self-preservation, and self-regard. Now, when I first read this, I was like, for a moment in time, I knew that these words were technically surrounded around the, you know, conversations of narcissism and selfishness. But for this moment in time, like reading these words, I was like, actually, There's nothing wrong with these things, (laughs) you know, like self-love, of course we know, but then self-defense and especially disorderly, not acting in an orderly way, not complying with the restraints of order and law, um, unruly, offensive to good morals and public decency. And I'm like, but if we're considering in terms of self, that's kind of like (laughs) self-preservation, you know, so what may be orderly for somebody else? And I was like, well, this is different. So can you talk to us about what made you just put these terms of engagement right there? Yeah, I mean, I think that is, um,
1: it was my attempt to make as clear as possible what my objective was, which was to create some space around the idea of self in particular and of self-regard even more particularly to do exactly what I'm happy to hear happened for you, which is to recognize that um, labels like selfish or narcissistic are just slapped so easily or so broadly on a whole range of behaviors and perspectives that if looked at with greater care might be speaking to something very different. And so I took all of these terms, disorderly, self-defense, self-love, self-possession, self-preservation, self-regard, as on the one hand, um, almost interchangeable because they all do refer back to a self that's trying to keep itself intact in the face of the aggressions or the demands or the interests of the outside world, but to show how there are nuances to um, the keeping the intactness Of the self, and that can range from like physical self defense, right? Keeping oneself safe in a physical, in a very physical way from aggressors. But it could be something as, you know, ostensibly simple but really quite difficult as actually loving the self or believing the self to be worthy of love, particularly in contexts where the world is telling you that that's not the case, that you are less worthy of love, if worthy of love at all um self-possession as something that really meant to lean into the double entendre we talk about self-possessions like oh this person is self-possessed meaning maybe potentially a little full of themselves or at least you know putting on a good show for the world but i wanted to think of self-possession as like owning the self like i belong to me um and so i am beholden to me first and foremost and then of course self-preservation um also has this mode of keeping the self intact. But I wanted to think about that, not just in the sense of like preserving for the long term, but also like keeping safe and um, and keeping sort of in a space of being ready to to live to fight another day. And so each of these terms, I was hoping that the reader would see as a place to begin relating to the premises of the book culminating in this idea that I found most resonant, which is self-regard. And um, because the word regard has in it both a very literal meaning, like what you look at, what you gaze at, what you see, and how you then look at, gaze upon, and see yourself. Um, but also the idea of regard as esteem, like in what, how much value do you give to yourself, right? And what regard do you hold yourself? Um, and so I just hoped that by foregrounding Um, these terms and these concepts that the reader would carry them through each of the chapters even though I end up attaching them to particular characters.
0: So can you speak to us a little bit about these characters that hold, you know, the self-regard and they demonstrate that to us? Um, it was actually really nice to see how you're like, well, you know, academia does this with them, but actually Mm -hmm. (laughs) if you kind of just leave them alone, they are (laughs) (laughs) actually in fact true. Um, but I, and you know, I like how you're like the, the actual portrayal of women in Caribbean fiction is either like you were saying, the giver, or Mm -hmm. it's a sexy, you know, um, Mixed exotic women, Mm -hmm. but then you're like, but there's also this other part, and as you were talking about with the steam and regard, so Mm -hmm. can you talk to us about the characters and what drew you to those novels?
1: Yeah, I mean, when I think of these characters, I think of them as like the coolest big sisters one could want to have almost, or just some sort of you know, characters that are taking one for the team of those of us who who don't get to protect ourselves in the same way for fear of being perceived as ungenerous or narcissistic or, you know, uncommunal in some sorts of ways. So I, these were all women who, um, as I was saying earlier, either in the narrative context of the books in which they figure or in their treatment um, by, by theorists have, had to stand firm in who they are despite being um, consistently criticized and even abused and or having their authors criticized for writing characters like them and so um to be very honest it wasn't some sort of big intellectual undertaking to determine the corpus it was recognizing that the books that i most wanted to teach frankly and that i most wanted to engage with as a scholar um, could be boiled down to, you know, among others, but certainly this 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 cohort of women or this, I think of them as a cohort, this cohort of women or this this constellation of women, and then this corpus of, of books. And in looking at them together, it became clear, at least to me, um, that even though each one of them is so different, so individual and so self-regarding, meaning so uh, singular, in and unto herself, they also had a lot in common. And it was that through line, it was the thread of what they had in common that I wanted to look at more closely and then develop something of a theory out of. Um, So I was just really seduced by them. And I was really um, impressed (laughs) by how far they were willing to go to stand firm in the claim of who they were.
0: Yeah, and it's um, yeah I think the impression definitely showed and it also made me wonder I was like, well I wonder how did you feel the first time you <laughs> like read I to like were you like did you well do you remember the <coughs> fe- I remember the feelings of most of the novels that touched me and like mm-hmm. it's like when you finish that last page and you put it down it's mm-hmm. like for a moment the world is silent. Mm-hmm. and it's just you in that book <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. do you do you remember yours like your feeling with any of these novels
1: you know I really do because um because despite how engaged and invested I am in them as an intellectual every time I read or teach them I have the same feeling and that feeling is actually not necessarily like a um, it's like grudging admiration and respect almost I've come to because frankly I remember the first time I read um, certainly Iti, daughter of Haiti yes to yeah, actually all of them amour Col and all of the books many of the books by, by these by these authors. it's like I was mad I was annoyed I was I was you know that way. Like the cliche which is true of like black people being in the movie theater and yelling back at the screen like girl why'd you do that (laughs) this was me and this continues to be me reading autobiography autobiography of my mother by Jamaica Kincaid like girl why'd you do that didn't have to be like that if you would only can't you compromise don't you and then every time being right, oh wait that's my inner police like that's the part of me that keeps me silent too often, or giving more than I'm capable of, or not saying no to the umpteenth thing I've been asked to do by the umpteenth person, which in within the same small window of time and refusing to be selective about the things I, I engage with, like the things that I try to teach to my daughter or remind my student at the all women's college that I teach in, right? So when I read these books, the feeling is a visceral, like a one, two, three, first, I'm sort of mad, <laughs> sort of like, again, curl, get it together. And then a self-check, like, why did I respond that way? And then an admiration, like a feeling of, it's not them that's wrong. It's the world that's wrong. And why am I siding with the world? Um, and so that's why I find these to be like incredibly compelling works of literature because they don't give me an ease when I read them. They give me a challenge every time.
0: And Condé, I know she does a great job of, you know, just triggering all of us. <laughs> you know, she, she's, a, she's a wonderful trigger.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's and
0: it's, I think And that's kind of like the theory that you put that the way these protagonists are, We shouldn't exactly just accuse them of narcissism and like, oh, Mm -hmm. this is a pathology and Mm -hmm. period, that's it. But maybe it's a self-check for us to, like, Mm -hmm. why are we thinking that way that this person is acting in their own freedom Mm -hmm. and we're upset? Yeah, exactly. I find, you know, that their
1: reactions to the world are illuminating as to what are the you know, what are the holes and the things that are wrong that can't accommodate them? And that's not to say that there're some superheroes and that they're perfect. On the contrary, if they were, they'd be less interesting. but what's what is fascinating to me is, um, you know, the extent to which we can or cannot accept accept them. If not love them, at least recognize their their right to to rights to human being, to to consideration, to um, to um, to generosity, even if they trigger us, right? Like, how good are we at being human if we can only be human um, when it comes with a set of expectations? Especially when it comes to Black women, you know, do they have to be super heroic in their capacity to suffer um, in order for us to champion them? And so, what do we do with those who say, "No, thank you, I'm not going to suffer on"? behalf of anyone outside myself, including, you know, most uh, troublingly, including my partner or my children, God forbid, or my sisters, right? Um, We're not used to Black women talking back to the world in that way.
0: And if we do, like you said, we end up policing each other or ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think what I, there's this term that you used, which was um, empathetic identification, so as even as scholars, as we analyze these works, we critique them because yeah. we're like, no, this is not what I do. So you should write out. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, this is kind of like, you call out not just readers, but you really are calling out like <laughs> scholars who use this book. So can you talk a little bit about how Global South scholars engage in this process of gatekeeping? Um, because it does it orders them when like the characters are disorderedly and that's okay. Right. But then we put them in order.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, there's this, I, I was literally just saying this to my students um, in a class I teach blackness in French. I was saying this at the end of a a lecture and um, I found myself quoting Fanon who I guess it's at the end of black skin, white mask says, says uh, I'm paraphrasing um, but maybe getting close uh, oh Lord make of me a man who questions and I realize that I I've translated that idea into my head as um, wanting to always be in a position of unsettling all things endlessly and what I mean by that is that you know I certainly engage with critics and scholars in this book who I feel have, Um, unjustly inadvertently unjustly cordoned off certain kinds of characters or certain kinds of books as not fitting into what we can probably agree is a project a progressive liberatory agenda when it comes to global south studies post-colonial studies black studies like no question that the intention and the communal intention is progressive and forward thinking Um, but as I try to make clear in the book, and it's something that's kind of an outgrowth of my earlier work, danger lies in um, not recognizing when we've created boundaries and borders around even the most progressive agendas. And so for me, the only safe space, knowing that we can't avoid our, our identity politics, our epistemological frames, like we can't escape them necessarily, but what we can do is make certain to question them, to unsettle all things endlessly, and to in ex, to exist in a space of um, admitting the possibility that our own discourses become exclusionary or limiting to someone who doesn't see themselves as being represented within that, right? So it doesn't mean you've got to change your tune every two seconds to adapt to the, ne- the, the next great thing or the next supposedly best progressive thing, but that we need to take seriously and to check our internal beliefs um, when we find that voice acting up and see, and I think that's the work of scholarship more broadly, like is to constantly be in conversation and in dialogue with one another so that we can let each other know when we are cementing boundaries or borders that can become limiting and constraining. And so throughout this book, I, I do, you know, with greater or lesser um, sort of nitpicky concern, point out how some of these characters or books have been maybe misrepresented or insufficiently considered or delved into Um, and I want to make the point that they're you know a different kind of look or a closer look can reveal uh, new information and new perspectives that might be useful in our thinking and our teaching and conceptualizing the world.
0: Yeah and I I really like that um, because yes I've progressive circles and thinking is happening but then what is it if you start to create barriers around it right. um it's where then you just kind of create a cycle that we fought to, to right. like move it's from. an irony yeah, and absolutely. it sounds like when you're as like that makes perfect sense which is sometimes what we do yeah <laughs> and, um, it's very dangerous it is and, and and I and I mean and I hope I
1: communicated it in the book like these the, the folks that I kind of um those that I, I kind of take issue with or, or want to nuance a bit, like, these are my colleagues and my interlocutors. Like, I'm in conversation with them because I think their work is necessary, brilliant, and generative. And I just want to open doors, like little escape hatches in, in certain places um, to broaden the conversation, not to erase what's come before by any means. Like, this is a conversation I enjoy have, having with people who I know or I believe are doing the right kind of work. Um, but I just kind of like, knock, 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 have you considered this? Because I feel like, you know, some blinders may have, have, um, gotten put on our, our little spectacles of scholars when we look to books to tell the stories we believe need telling, as opposed to looking closely at what the characters are are trying to tell us in certain instances, even when what they're trying to tell us might bother us um, more than we're used to.
0: It's, um, yeah, and that kind of just kind of, it was like a, you know, you know when you have therapy with yourself, <laughs> it was just like, yeah, I think I, I like what books bothered me and why, mm-hmm. um, I'm not looking mm-hmm. at it from an angle of, well, I didn't like it, but what, like between yeah. myself and mm-hmm. myself, why did I not like it, and I think. One of the things you also put forward in the book is this different view of narcissism. So social media has ran with narcissism. Mm. I don't know if you've seen the past. Everybody was like a mental health specialist. (laughs) And like they had all like, what is a narcissist? (laughs) So there's such a like negative, you know, view on this work. But then you kind of turn it around and you're like, well, these women yes they may you know have some of these traits but then they, it's actually an act of self-love but you delve so much into this theory that is really interesting. I'm hoping if you can elaborate how you connect like narcissism to self-love and um, how it produces anxiety and it also creates disorder you know within the, like these because of their let's say their narcissistic act if they're following their sexual desires or so. It ends up creating disorder within the community. Right? right, right. All of a sudden, it's like, well, no, like, that's not what you should be when, in fact, we're kind of forgetting that she's she has the right to practice her freedoms. <laughs> she has. Yeah, I like
1: the way you put that. She has the right to practice her freedoms. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, when I first conceived of the project, I think I'm I'm not sure how long this lasted but it had narcissism in the title and I just got so much pushback at pushback from colleagues pushback from my editor like pushback from all manner of incredibly smart people who knew what I was trying to do but really couldn't get over that word couldn't get over narcissism because its negative purchase was just too immense. And at some point I realized I had to, and it was a really enlightening and useful moment. And I'm glad it happened, you know, when I finally decided, all right, it's just too much work to try to rebrand narcissism in the 21st century, frankly. Um, So it was a real intellectual exercise to get from narcissism to self-regard as a more palatable way of you know sneaking into the back door the thing that I wanted to say which was that you know narcissism is itself a complex complex concept and um so yeah so you know narcissism was a term I had to abandon um because of sort of the negative weight that it carried. And I realized that it was distracting from what I was trying to do with the book. And so the intellectual exercise for me became, okay, how do I get across what I have come through a lot of research to figure out about the usefulness of narcissism to helping me grapple with these characters, um, which is, you know, and I say it pretty clearly in the book, the idea that, that healthy narcissism, right? That first of all, I should say that narcissism exists on a continuum from healthy to pathological but has been sort of uh, narrowed down in common parlance and understanding to its pathological iteration. But what about what if we, you know, dwell in the healthy, right? What if we dwell in the moment where narcissism is actually no more than um, the effort that the self makes to protect itself from the assaults of the outside world? Problematically, that's Freud, who who has articulated it in that way, but uh, we don't need to throw the the baby out with the bathwater, we can put Freud to the side and think about um, what it would mean to really invest in, what it would mean and for whom it would mean the most to really invest in a healthy self-interest and to think about narcissism, not as um, it has come to be understood as something aggressive that assaults other people with its shine and its pathologies and it's, you know, all the things, but something that actually protects and in cases, and um, keeps healthy um, a, 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 an otherwise vulnerable soul, and so you know not being able to use the word successfully, no matter how many drafts I wrote or how many times I tried in person and lectures or what have you to say. But please believe me, narcissism it doesn't equate with Paris Hilton. It's something else. Uh, what could I what could I do to still get that point across? And I realized, all right. Um, at the heart of it is protection of the self, and then I started playing around with those exact same vocabulary words that ended up being the introduction to the book: self possession, self love, uh, self you know, self defense, um, self knowledge to an extent, self regard as the overarching umbrella. Um, and so I got in my bit about narcissism in a couple of paragraphs in the introduction to be true to the origins of where this came from. Um, but then I I turned it into I hope something that folks could hang on to with with without any guilt or without any sort of knee jerk wait narcissism bad no women
0: and are bad that was kind of like the first thing I was like wait a minute where is this going yeah and, and I was like okay so is you know at some point you reread sentences like over and over again to yeah. make sure that you're understanding the language behind mm-hmm. the words and I was like okay so I think narcissism but then like you said. I think I reread those paragraphs okay. quite a, like because a, I, I wanted to understand how you were linking narcissism to self-regard, but then mm. I think giving it considerable time, and once again, this is really important, which you do put forth in this book, we have to look at these novels and appreciate them for what they are and not exactly project whatever it is our feelings are on it. And if it triggers feelings inside of you, then the author is doing what it's what she's supposed to do which yeah. is she's making you hold up a mirror to yourself so mm-hmm. like you just said reading that sentence because you did say it narcissism is on a continuum and I was like okay mm. so this is I have to understand <laughs> right, you know, right. Before just being like wait what is the link here so mm. I, and then I was like yeah that is actually right you know there, this is a different view but it would have been really interesting to see your book on, let's say, Barnes and Nobles, and it said narcissism. Narcissism.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. it would have been a different, a different book, a different career, and a t- different audience, certainly, because um, there is, there are some books on narcissism, but they, they, they mainly, you know, they do treat it. Like from a medical perspective, whereas I'm obviously thinking about it from a metaphorical perspective. Like, how can it have usefulness to a metaphorical and conceptual perspective? Like, how can it have usefulness to um, understanding certain kinds of responses of certain kinds of individuals in, in situations where they feel endangered um, by their community? And how, you know, how can those communities potentially be recognized as? presenting a danger to an individual woman while at the same time presenting progress and uplift for a whole other contingent of people. Right. So I was interested in teasing out like that space of hiatus between the needs of a community and, um, and what that entailed in terms of the sacrifices of one of its members.
0: And the the needs of the community, I think there's this, you put forward the, how the, the, The existence of these characters, how there was like an intertextual—they were disturbing the community within the text, but then on the outside, you know, as readers as well, how we too were, you know, disturbed by the critics, the criticism that these books would receive. So, can you speak a little bit or walk us through how you argue the um, this view of freedom as an ethical practice, which is often in conflict. With community, right? So it's like when a woman is much more associated with individualism, it doesn't look too good for her, right? (laughs) But then, you know, if it's a man, then it's like this gender thing that you're putting forward in terms of how these women own themselves. Reg- for themselves regardless of what the community which is right. interesting it's not just the community that's in these books but it's like the authors are also saying like they're also disrupting your life <laughs> you know when, when you put the book down like oh so it's um I really like this the link between individualism and community and what we do with you know black women
1: mm-hmm. yeah I think That's a great question. It's a complicated one. I I, I mean, I guess the book is in part my effort to answer it. And it took me like a couple hundred pages to do it, but I'll try to, (laughs) I'll try to do it here um, in not the equivalent amount of time in words. Um, But I suppose like the formula would be if we all agree that like um, the big goal is human freedom, Right? We can all sort of get behind, you know, unless you're a raging pathological sociopath. Like, human freedom is something we can all say. That's objectively a good thing for everyone. Um, but with that, I think there are two elements that are presumed. Um, one is that to get to freedom, the most likely vessels towards that or actors who will get us towards that are men. Generally, you know, white men, but if we're talking about the context of marginalized communities, it's going to be marginalized men. So black men or non-white men like leading the charge toward this idea of human freedom, right? That's the best bet. Um, And so what that presumes then, obviously, is that the interests of that man are somehow seamlessly aligned with the best interests of the rest of the community that so this this person is is at at once um, the individual shining light the hero who is leading towards human freedom but also the embodiment of what those freedom claims and those freedom demands actually are Um, and so when i'm talking about freedom in the book i guess i'm interested in what if instead of thinking about freedom as like this overarching umbrella that, you know, for some reason I just had my uh, in my mind like a sperm. <laughs> <laughs> but let's maybe edit that out, but I don't know. But like this, that this one man is
0: leading us. That oh, sword. that's staying in there. No worries at all. Because that's, I mean, because that, that's the image. I that swear to you, that's literally, the image is like the, this one glorious swimmer reaching, you
1: know, this nirvana or what have you. But, if, in the end, i'm I'm asking if we could potentially think about the goal of freedom as being comprised of um, a collection or a constellation of individual freedoms um, and you know, allowing individuals to divine freedom on their own terms, especially, the most marginalized. Now I am not a political theorist, so I certainly can't speak to whether or not, you know, that's the move in terms of, you know, global social transformation. But I will say that, you know, we're not there yet anyway. So maybe we could explore the possibility that's that some folks might not fit the the mode or the mold of what looks like the quote best interests of the community. And that's fine. And they may be wrong. But what is of importance or of interest to me is, well, what do we do with those people? Um, do we cast them out? Do we try to make them conform? Um, like, what are, and, and these are, are not rhetorical questions. But like the, the hope is, and what I'm seeing in these books, is are suggestions for alternative modes of engagement. Like, what do you do with a woman that says no? Not as a rhetorical question, but like literally, okay, once she says no, um, where do we go from there? What do we allow her? What do we allow her to to envision for herself? Even if she says, y'all do your own thing, I'm going to be doing this. Um, Does that then require her ostracization or her shunning? Um, or can she be accepted? Maybe not integrate that. Maybe not integrated into the community. Maybe that's not what she wants, but can she coexist? Can she exist alongside? Can she exist punctually in and out, right? So, you know, the book is asking questions and I'm asking questions and I continue to ask questions about, you know, what are those parameters of belonging? Um, and, and what are the costs of non-belonging?
0: So what you're speaking, it reminded me of... Um... My introduction to feminism was Western feminism and I was like, I'm not a part of that. I'm like, I and people were like, you know, you're I mean, it was in college. I was like, You're a black woman, you're you're a feminist. And I'm like, mm-hmm. No, I'm not. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the more I delved deeper, I learned about the different types of feminism. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Well, however, within the discourse or if w- the, the theory and the reality looked so different, right? right. So one feminism was accepted, the other was criticized. Mm-hmm. Um, but you just put it all together in terms of these fem, all these different types of feminism should be able to coexist
1: alongside
0: mm-hmm. each other. They should first, they're all valid. Right. <laughs> I mean, because I that's if that's the point of feminism, right? And that means that we should allow these different types of, um, freedoms and ways of living and defining yourself as a woman or just as a, even if you, if you're transitioning, these are all valid forms. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly.
1: And, you know, what you're saying about coexistence, it's also, you know, I I looked at these women and I was kind of like, they're not hurting anybody, right? So just kind of thinking also, um, maybe like the disproportion between a response that feels like a response to having been betrayed or in some way wounded or injured when in most instances, and I think blanketly for the women that I'm talking about in these novels, um, they were, they were, they were doing them. They were not um, behaving in ways that were harmful uh, in any direct manner. And yet the community reacted as if they had been doing something harmful. So then the question to me became, well, what, what was it about them being themselves that was threatening, that the community perceived as a threat, and that became interesting to me as well? And you know, you use just almost offhand, um, you, you mentioned whether you're a woman or transitioning. You know, part of what I was thinking about in the book is okay. So this is a this is a, a book that relies on gender, certainly. Right, and I, you know, I took one step, which was I didn't make it about gendered authorship. I have five novels, and two of the authors are men, who I think create women characters that speak to this question that I'm that I'm trying to to think through and maybe answer. But the women themselves are women identifying women. Right? Um, they are variably queer. Um, I'd say Chituba, Adriana, Zuela, you know. Three of them have queer experiences. One of them is a tad homophobic, frankly, the enslaved woman, Lilith. Um, one of them, it, it doesn't really come up. But I I feel like a, a door that's opened by this project, but certainly not entered, is, all right, so what if we start thinking about self-regard um, beyond the category of women identifying women, but into... Um, you know, non cisgendered people, right? So that the, 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 the person or the type of individual that I'm hoping might see themselves or might see self regard as a possibility for, um, for self actualization, is it really just non cis dudes that I'm trying to read? Like, is, is that maybe a category that would, would find these kinds of freedoms useful? Maybe. Um, if, I think it's like a next direction of my thinking. Um, to determine, well, what if I move beyond the category of woman to think about freedom for those who, um, in different ways, have been disallowed freedom to be
0: to be self for selfish or self-regarding. So many questions your book opens up. <laughs> so um, it definitely is something. It's it's a it's a provoking thought thinker, and your style of writing also is not. You're not calling. <laughs> it's not like I was. You know, you were um, yelling at us. So I but like I how I felt at least I was reading. I'm like, there's kind of something soothing to the way she's talking about such mm. you know provoking topics. But mm. um, I enjoyed the style of writing. It's oh, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, it's kind of like you know even before we spoke, like I was mentioning to you before we hit record, I was like, oh, your voice matches the book. It's very soothing. <laughs> You know, and it's like a conversation and you're like, well, Mm -hmm. how about that? So just like.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, I'm um, glad to hear that. Yeah. I didn't want to be strident. That's I I wanted to avoid that tone. So I'm glad that, that you felt that.
0: I think you definitely did a good job with that. So, but how did you know, finishing this book, Leave You, um, we often hear, you know, people are exhausted, which is the okay. <laughs> case, and then they just never want to write on this topic, at least for a, for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, but did, you, did it leave you, I think this question that you spoke about um, gender beyond just women, mm-hmm. or you know, women who identify from, like, birth, but how else did it leave you in the process of writing and editing, are you gonna continue to build on this or um, how else are you going to, or what other direction are you moving into?
1: Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, Yeah, I hope it doesn't sound too hackneyed, but I think that uh, this project, though very different from my first book and some of my other scholarly writing, it's still turning around the same question frankly in it and i think my scholarship will continue to turn around that question and you know and coming from the same perspective the perspective being this idea of unsettling all things endlessly that kind of runs like a mantra in my head because i find myself often um frustrated by the bounds of community when it comes to the world and when it comes to the academy and and that is the safe no not the safe space that's kind of the ethical space that i feel most comfortable inhabiting is a space of like adamant um, vocal and 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 persistent questioning so it could be seen as a refusal to land almost but what it is is a consistent interest in people who who people or texts that i feel are adjacent to the space of belonging, but are interpolated by that space of belonging. So, you know, by that I mean um, people who exist kind of just outside the frame of the expected. So, you know, my first book was on um, a group of Haitian writers known as the spiralists who were among the very few um publishing Haitian intellectuals to be writing during the 30 years of the Duvalier dictatorship and um, who in so doing found themselves very much outside of the mainstream, if you will, of world literature, very much disregarded um, or understudied or underinterrogated because of the fact that they had never made it out of Haiti um, for fear of not being let back in. And so I was interested in what we as so-called francophonists and, and and Haitianists had overlooked because they should have fit but didn't quite exactly fit and and it's a very different set of authors and texts but that same spirit animated a regarded self like these women that are in the maelstrom of francophone and anglophone Caribbean literature but nonetheless exists somewhat outside of the frame of what's accepted as canonically hoeing to a line, uh, hewing to a line, um, around community. And so then the next project that I'm working on, um, or the two next projects that I'm working on are, are, um, very, very different actually in terms of their form and the like superficially their topic, but are also, as I said, like animated by the same question of, um, unsettling things but also thinking about figures who exist a little bit outside the frame so the first project the one I'm you know up to my neck in right now um is a an intellectual biography kind of thing it's called for the love of revolution run de best and the poetics of a radical life and it traces the um traces the biography of one of the authors from um, from this last book, uh, Juanne De Pesco, the writer of Adriana and All My Dreams. And he's this character, and I, I do get a little bit into his biography in the book, but he's this individual who was exiled from Haiti in 1945 and throughout the forty years of the Cold War, found himself exiled not just from Haiti, but then from France, from Czechoslovakia, uh, from various places in South America. Uh, ultimately from Cuba until finally settling in the South of France. And um, his kind of life story has been read as this, um, almost like this person who invested in militant socialism for 40 years and then settled and retired in France and turned his back on revolution and just became like a famous writer. And, and I realized that embedded in that story were critical expectations of like what he should have done. Like, And I thought to myself, you know, how many of us have been out there, you know, exiled in service to global social revolution, lived and worked in Cuba with Fidel Castro and Che Guevara, Ho Chi Minh, Mao Zedong, who have like lived their intellectual and political principles, and who, at the end of forty years of trying to make that happen, um, have found themselves reevaluating their past and their politics. And I've been interested in a certain lack of generosity in in thinking about this person that then extends to the way in which his work is thought about. And so I decided to invest in this project of, um, of presenting his life in a way that I think uh, nuances that that narrative. Um, and so that's a project that's very different because it's not literary criticism. It's, it's storytelling, it's biography, but that I hope will pack something of a similar punch in terms of Um, asking folks to read and think differently about some of their preconceptions about what a person's story should be. Um, Yeah.
0: I think it follows the same thread of, you know, looking at the other side and saying like, okay, well, wait a minute. Right. (laughs) Is there another side to the story? So I think... Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's definitely excited for that one that should be. Oh good. I'm hoping
1: so. And it's nothing else. It's a crazy story. And I'm hoping <laughs> yes, that it's that crazy fine. story. I was, will shed some fine. light on this, you know, on this character who ultimately, <laughs> you know, presents a very, very different picture of Haitian migration from what we're used to hearing in the so called, you know, first world about, you know, what a Haitian movement looks like. Um, this is not your typical migrant story or your quote, boat people story. This is a person who um, was part of the world in a very different way that, you know, in telling his story, I'm hoping might create some space around the limited views that we have on on Haitians um, in the contemporary moment. And then there's this other project that I'm working on that is currently coming about as potentially some, like a documentary or a documentary series. It is um, tentatively titled Black Diva Saves the World. And <laughs> it's... Um, <laughs> it's a series or a film that's that's that looks at black performing women's political utopias as they emerge in moments of global um global unrest around the matter of race and racialization so i'm looking at some more and less mostly well-known but some less known uh women from josephine baker to katherine dunham to Marian anderson to miriam McCabe to nina simone and Maybe with a little Beyoncé coda, um, but that—that that looks at the ways that um, Black women have used their celebrity to um, to present possibilities for other worlds in these crucial moments of uh, of racial instability, ranging from segregation to. Uh, you know, to Nazism, to apartheid, to civil rights, to Black Lives Matter, um, how they have have articulated visions of alternative um, worlds, but then made themselves very vulnerable um, in so doing and found themselves targeted not only by the racist establishments of the government of whatever country they find themselves in or exiled from, um, but also found themselves in situations where, um, where Black audiences have turned against them and so here too it's thinking about you know what are the what are the constraints that are imposed by communities that are ostensibly freedom loving and progressive when it comes to uh, black women so again a very different subject matter but i'm still preoccupied by the same questions i guess Yeah, yeah
0: it's um yeah i mean the notions of freedom still yeah so just so we don't speak for another 50 minutes (laughs) (laughs) that documentary sounds like yeah there's already a lot of questions but thank you so much professor glover for joining us and hopefully we'll have you back to speak about those (laughs) two to speak about (laughs) you have your hands full but i'll be like you know watching out for when the documentary comes out and for the next project (laughs) i appreciate
1: it thank you so much for having this conversation with me i really enjoyed your thoughtful questions and being in dialogue with you thank you